You're listening to The Zeitgeist, a podcast focused on Germany, the United States, and the transatlantic relationship. Join us as we discuss economics, politics, security, and more. I'm Jeff Rafke, president of the American Institute for Contemporary German Studies at Johns Hopkins University. Well, let me welcome all of our listeners to this episode of The Zeitgeist. Today, we're talking about the COVID pandemic and healthcare policy. Uh, and I'm really glad we've got to, with us two terrific experts who can shed light on the American, German, and broader European experiences with the, the pandemic. And in particular, um, what, this is, what this is going to mean for us um, as, we, as we look ahead. Uh, the, first, uh, the first of my uh, guests is uh, Ariel Kane. She is the Director of Healthcare uh, at the Progressive Policy Institute. Uh, uh, hello, Ariel. Hello, thank you so much for having me. And you're here in Washington, is that right? I am, yes. I've been working in DC in healthcare policy for about 10 years now, which is crazy. Wow, okay, great. And we also have with us Philip Hoyermann. Hello, Philip. Hi, Jeff, good to be here. Philip is a uh, is an MPA student at Harvard's Kennedy School, but he was previously a consultant with a focus on health policy. Um, and and so with that, we've got uh, a couple of uh, people with great expertise who can help uh, who can help walk us uh, walk us through this. I, I want to start by setting uh, the stage, I guess, a bit, and that is and that is by saying that we've got in the COVID pandemic. You know, two vastly different outcomes. If I look at the United States and the countries of the European Union, European Union, 440 million people. There have been about 134 million COVID cases reported, according to the EU's uh, Centers for Disease Control, and about 560,000 deaths. In the United States, population roughly 330 million. We've had fewer COVID cases, 89 million, um, but a, a, about twice, almost twice as many deaths, over a million deaths, um, having crossed that threshold um, uh, earlier this year and was much more marked upon. So if we look at this on a per capita basis, you've got a death rate in the United States from COVID that is about, it's almost two and a half times higher than the death rate in the European Union countries. So I think that bit of backdrop is, uh, is part of our discussion uh, today as, as we talk about that. And, and the first aspect I think we're gonna delve into is trust. There has been a, uh, of course, wide attention to the skepticism, whether it's with regard to the pandemic and its seriousness or the efficacy and advisability of vaccines, not only in the United States, but also in Germany. And, and so I'd like to talk a little bit about how the, the question of trust um, has impacted the COVID response. And I'll start with you, Ariel. How do you, how do you see this and how big an issue is trust? Um, well, thank you so much for having me on. So I think the issue of trust is really important, and I don't think that this is um, a purely COVID-related issue. Uh, trust in institutions and trust in experts has been being eroded in recent years in the United States. 
um, you kind of have this attitude of, you know, experts don't know as good as like my own gut intuition. Um, and that makes it really hard to provide like complex evolving and, you know, scientific information to the public. Um, and again, I think this is larger than just like vaccine hesitancy or, um, COVID, you know, in more specifically, I think it's an overall distrust of the government of institutions and of like scientific expertise. Um, you see a lot more people, you know, going online and doing their own research and, and, you know, and trying to solve problems themselves. Um, I do like to point out that some skepticism from authority is somewhat warranted. I do think that the government has made some missteps that then um, is easy to kind of compound the attitude of distrust. Uh, I specifically, I think of like the opioid crisis and how the FDA and physicians were told that the drugs were safe and non-addictive. And then obviously that was wrong. Um, and so, you know, there's just, we had that like leading into COVID. And so it's like, you know, how, why would you trust the FDA to tell you what is or isn't correct? Mm -hmm. Um, and, and then there were some early missteps that I think, um, I think kind of led to this issue being worse than it needed to be. Um, when you think about masking, uh, you had the US government saying that we didn't need to mask. Um, and then later they said that they lied to the public and it was to conserve masks. Um, and I just think that if you are admitting that you are trying to manipulate the public to get a specific response, um, that doesn't, uh, you know, garner trust between both parties. Um, and then I think things just like continue to collapse from there. Mm -hmm. And how, you know, if we talk, if we think about the general um, uh, question of population health in the United States, how much of, how much does that suffer from this trust issue? Not, not specifically in the pandemic, but more generally. Yeah. I think that's a really good question. Um, I mean, I think we have poor population health for a number of reasons, not just because of, you know, distrust between um, experts and, you know, the public, um, but, you know, the head of the FDA has specifically said that misinformation is contributing to um, the, a decline in life expectancy. Um, if you think about people trying to solve their own problems, whether it be you know, prior to COVID, this would be like cancer or, um, you know, I'm trying to think of other things that people would do more alternative routes and not take what's available to them. But, you know, people, when people decline, like evidence-based effective healthcare in, in exchange for their own research or what they think might be better for them, you know, uh, that doesn't bode well for health outcomes. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so, Philip, let me let me uh, switch over to, to you for your perspective. How do you see the issue of trust? And if you in particular, uh, how, how do you see this in the German context? Yeah, thanks, Jeff. I think in the German context as well, the issue of trust and, and the broader issue of um, to what extent do people trust uh, in public institutions and to what extent do people trust in the measures that the government is taking in a crisis is a very important one as well. I think in the in the German context, we saw that um, Germany locked down relatively early, uh, which provided uh, a little bit of a time buffer in flattening the curve in the German context. But especially when it comes to, for example, the vaccine, 
there were some early mistakes um, that jeopardized uh, some of the trust. For example, if you take the issue of the AstraZeneca vaccine in Germany, uh, we know that, for example, this was the workhorse of uh, the British uh, and Swedish COVID response. But due to, the, due to some uh, misinformation in some of the newspapers, um, the AstraZeneca vaccine in Germany basically fell through and the AstraZeneca vaccine program was discontinued after a while because the public trust in the vaccine itself was eroded so much. And I think um, this is problematic because if we assume that you know, let's say we have 10% of people in the population who are somewhat hesitant to uh, get a vaccine. If an issue such as the uh, sort of AstraZeneca vaccine role happens, then you lose um, a significant percentage of those 10% of people that, however, would contribute um, to whatever herd immunity you're trying to achieve. So I think in general, um, experts um, in Germany were also frequently assaulted uh, for their positions, for example, for demanding stronger lockdowns. Um, and um, the media also played a very significant role in sort of driving uh, the political discourse on these issues. Yeah, and can I just build on that point real quick? Absolutely. Um, so I would say that you also saw that in the United States at the, the local level where you have like public health officials on the ground really doing the legwork. Um, you know, a lot of them were attacked at the community level for recommending things like shutdowns or shelter in place or masks and things like that. And, um, you know, that the the industry as a whole was already underfunded and somewhat demoralized. But then in the middle of a public health emergency, you saw them sort of be villainized. And, um, and you can imagine that if you're already not being paid very well or not supported in the work that you're doing to then, you know, feel like your safety is in jeopardy, you know, why would people like pursue this career? Um, and I think that that, again, going back to that lack of trust or that lack of um, respect for the expert opinion is, you know, a compounding problem in that now you'll see fewer people go into that industry and fewer people wanting to take on those roles. And then, you know, we'll have poor outcomes. And so this brings me to, um, you know, so what do we do about this? What's the, what's the path forward to fix the question of reduced trust in public health authorities and in the public health system? Um, uh, how, how do we get out of this? I mean, I can take a first stab. I would say, first and foremost, you have to be transparent with the public, and that is acknowledging like what we do and don't know. You you cannot have um, public communication strategies that involve you know trying to get a desired behavior uh, by you know sort of manipulating information or not being transparent. Um, it just creates more problems than it solves down the road. Um, and and then I think you know getting you go just going back to our roots and like getting people the public health service that's serving at the community level that comes from the community and serves the community and sort of reminding people that that is what our public health system is built on it's not um as centralized and as uh you know coming from washington as people perceive it to be um and sort of changing the messaging and the lens around that and reminding people that like we have a decentralized public health system that's on the ground in the community level and that's what's made a difference i do want to point to one um area of success that i think it's really important uh, when the vaccines were first released in the united states there was concern that um 
underserved populations like people of color, uh, in particular, black Americans would be more hesitant to take the vaccine, given that it was a newer technology. And we have sort of, a, again, a lack of trust between um, black Americans and the public health um, the the public health infrastructure in this country, um, but uh, public health officials worked really hard on the ground and in communities. They worked with community leaders. And at this point in time, um, black Americans are more likely to be vaccinated than white Americans, which is something you haven't seen in the past. Um, and so there is uh, proven um, strategies to get people to believe in, um, in public health and get people to sort of uh, take the plunge of getting vaccines or whatever desired behavior that we're, we're trying to uh, achieve. Well, you've hit upon an optimistic nugget there, which I'm <laughs> grateful for. Philip, um, how, how, what's your perspective on the way, the way forward to rebuild trust? I think it's certainly an institutional uh, question as well. For example, um, in Germany, what we saw is that um, the public health institutions that you know were responsible in, in contact tracing or responsible for contact tracing, uh, responsible for the communication on the ground, they are mostly based primarily on the municipal level and then um, on the state level. So I think, I think one of the first things here is to have a unified command because often in Germany, you know, the municipality uh, was uh, doing one thing, the state was doing another thing. There was sort of a role between a federal state such as Bavaria and other states, which demanded a bit of a lexer uh, a lockdown um, regime uh, overall. So I think there's sort of one aspect in terms of seeking a more unified uh, command on let's say a federal level. Um, here. I think secondly, in Germany, um, what we saw is a glaring lack of digitization, especially in these public uh, health institutions. Um, this, uh, for example, uh, was apparent in the reporting of case numbers in the early days of the pandemic, uh, which uh, was not digitized at all, which basically had to be done manually. And I think here we need to think about better uh, sort of funding and equipment um, and, and a digitized sort of approach to dealing with these public health questions. But I think ultimately, uh, what's really key is a sort of truthful, uh, impartial and transparent government communication. And um, I think uh, all across the world, we have only partly uh, seen that. And I mean, sometimes um, the communication uh, from uh, different uh, segments of the government led to uh, more confusion than um, actually uh, helping the situation at times. And so with those uh, lessons in mind, uh, it, as we look at the, the longer term impact of the pandemic, the things that we uh, in the United States and Germany more broadly will be, will be dealing with for a long time to come. Uh, of course, there's the, there's the question of long COVID um, and how we approach that. Um, uh, how, uh, how has COVID-19 affected um, uh, our th th this on the, as a medical phenomenon, um, uh, Ariel. Yeah, so I think um, when we think about like the long term or sort of like chronic um, implications of COVID, two things come to mind. One, um, what did COVID do to our existing chronic? 
chronically sick population, and two, you know, has it induced more need for chronic care? Um, when you think about the existing population that had chronic diseases prior to COVID, um, you saw them maybe not getting the care that they needed during the early months of the pandemic when, um, you know, there were a lot of shelter in place orders and um, hospitals were overloaded and things like that. Um, later on, you saw just workforce shortages across the healthcare sector as people either left or were so, you know, because of burnout or were still dealing with wave after wave of COVID patients. Um, and, you know, what does, what are the implications of all of that missed care, especially going back to your opening point, which in a country that has um, lower overall population health, uh, what does missing so much care mean? Um, and how will that affect, um, you know, the, the population health as we go forward? And then to my other point, which is, you know, how, will long COVID induce more, um, chronic care needs moving forward. And what does that mean? I think that there was two things that happened. One, long COVID. And two, there were a lot of lifestyle changes that happened throughout the pandemic, which in and of themselves um, were bad for, for, you know, public health, population health. And, um, you know, we already have really high rates of um, obesity, diabetes, COPD, um, all of those lifestyle diseases in the United States. Uh, and I think that that's going to all worsen. COVID-19 is also linked with causing diabetes. So not only if you already have diabetes, are you more likely to die from COVID, but if you get COVID, you are now more likely to get diabetes. Um, and all of those things are, you know, contributing to a declining life expectancy in the United States. Um, and then, you know, I'm not trying to be a Debbie Downer, but I think that this is, as COVID becomes more endemic, I think this is going to be the big question, which is how does it affect people and how, you know, are we prepared to deal with those things? Like, do we have the workforce for chronic care management? Do we have a healthcare system that's set up for a lot of touch points where you can check in with a provider um, more frequently and not have it be a bureaucratic nightmare. Um, I'm, I'm not convinced that we are fully uh, ready for the needs of a, a population that, you know, requires a lot of chronic care. Um, do you see a similar pattern, uh, Philip, uh, in the German experience with, uh, with COVID? How is Germany equipped to deal with the ways in which uh, COVID is going to change the health profile and the vulnerabilities of the population. Yeah, maybe one specific point uh, to uh, long COVID, as mentioned by Ariel, I think it's worthy to point out that, uh, you know, the risk of uh, getting long COVID in the first place is much lower in people who are vaccinated. So I think uh, even as the pandemic turns into more of an endemic, it's very important to uh, continue um, a high sort of vaccination rate in the population to avoid uh, the sort of repercussions from uh, long COVID in the first place. And I think what's interesting um, in the case of, of long COVID is that we simply don't know yet what causes it. There is a few uh, studies going on, especially in, uh, in the Netherlands and the UK, um, that are currently uh, looking at the sort of causal mechanism of long COVID. Is it tiny blood clots? Is it a sort of persistent lingering virus? Is it a constant inflammation of the immune system? And uh, what the researchers have found out so far is that there is not one consistent image of long COVID, but that it's actually a sort of, that there are several sub 
groups of what long COVID actually constitutes. And I think it is definitely a, a very, very important question that we have to dedicate resources to in order to offset the sort of negative um, health effects. But of course, you know, more broader um, to your question, um, there is definitely a very uh, sort of big change on the horizon um, in Germany. One of the uh, main problems that the pandemic uh, clearly illustrated is the critical working conditions and the uh, lack of uh, qualified nursing staff in specific in German hospitals and German nursing care homes. And with uh, sort of, you know, half a million uh, German uh, German workers uh, projected to be leaving the workforce from 2025 onwards, this demographic change will definitely uh, be a very, very big challenge to the German care system as such, which is which was further aggravated by um, the challenge of combating COVID for sure. So with that, I, I want to transition to the question of innovation, because of course, uh, there are very real and very grave consequences that the pandemic uh, has brought to uh, to our societies. Um, the, a bright spot, uh, though, is the speed with which uh, our uh, our public health systems and especially uh, our uh, research uh, communities have identified and developed vaccine um, and and then uh, made it available to the broad population. So uh, what, what can we say about the uh, experience of innovation in life sciences and, and, and public health? I wanna start with you, Philip, uh, on that question. Uh, what, how, uh, how much of that do we, can we call a success and, and can what, to what can we attribute it? Right, I think uh, COVID, uh, if there's one positive thing out of COVID, it is really the illustration of the transformative power of science and that the uh, advances in medical science have had on our lives. Basically, uh, the CEO of uh, Moderna uh, said in an interview that it basically took Moderna based on you know, their, um, their uh, artificial intelligence-based capabilities, that it took them only 48 hours to design the vaccine in a computer to basically design um, the spike vax, uh, vaccine. I mean, of course, it took then more than a year to go through the clinical trials to make sure the uh, vaccine is safe. But I think on this front, we have giant medical progress that has significantly helped us to offset some of the you know, more severe uh, problems that the uh, pandemic could have had. I think the uh, mRNA uh, vaccines, now that they're uh, sort of proved and tested and, and uh, you know, turning into sort of mainstream uh, medical products, that is a huge uh, deal, especially, for example, in the oncology um, and cancer space. Um, and I think uh, we're really starting to see the results of this sort of accelerated uh, transformation in the broader biotech and life sciences community, um, which has been put at the forefront um, through COVID. Ariel? Yeah, I think that what's exciting about what came out of COVID um, is, is the innovation front, but also the collaboration that we saw. Um, you know, it really felt uh, like the world came together to solve a global problem. And it makes me optimistic, <laughs> even though I was just very depressing about the future of chronic care, but it does make me optimistic about um, solutions moving forward. Uh, I think you saw, uh, you know, 
Pfizer and BioNTech working together. And you, you know, you saw all of these different experiments happening in different places. So um, in the UK, right, they took like a one shot strategy where they tried to give as many people as possible one shot rather than holding shots back so everyone could get two doses. And at this moment right now, you see New York City copying that model with the monkeypox um, outbreak. And I just think we saw a lot of innovation and experimentation at a scale that we hadn't seen before. And, um, you know, that's going to provide a lot of information for how to both, um, you know, both on the scientific side and also like on the policy side of how do we solve these complex emerging threats moving forward. I think that's an important point um, it, it, that it's not just about uh, the innovation in developing vaccines and therapeutics, uh, but it's also experimentation in how we apply these, how we make them available, um, how we uh, deal with the public health consequences. Um, there, there's another aspect of the, of the research and innovation um, uh, you know, ecosystem uh, that I think is also important. And that is what you just touched on, uh, Ariel, that is uh, cooperation uh, and, and the ways that that the United States and, and Germany and other uh, advanced democracies can facilitate the concentration of research uh, talent and, and expertise in order to achieve these kinds of breakthroughs. Uh, what, what can we say about, for example, uh, immigration uh, in, that, uh, in that context and the mobility of labor? Uh, Philip, any thoughts on that? Yeah, totally. I think that's a very important point, Jeff. I mean, you know, for any life sciences or, or broader biotech ecosystem to succeed, it must be internationally oriented, it must be open um, in order to tap into the scientific know-how, to tap into the talent, and to tap into uh, capital from around the world. And I think, uh, as Ariel mentioned, the sort of cooperation between Pfizer and BioNTech or other uh, cross uh, sort of national uh, collaborations in manufacturing the vaccine, but also in working towards um, other sort of therapeutic modalities and open up, opening up uh, new treatments for cancer um, and for other diseases, we can see that this is very much based on a sort of uh, on a sort of international uh, talent pool and on the openness of international borders, which is one of the basic preconditions of uh, a sort of su successful innovation ecosystem, in my opinion. And Ariel? just building, yeah, building on the immigration point, I want to circle back to the chronic care um, question, which is, you know, if we need more healthcare workers in countries like the United States and Germany, you know, we're probably going to solve some of that through immigration through immigration. And um, I think that, you know, it just highlights our interconnectedness and how, um, you know, what one country lacks, another country might be able to provide. Um, and, you know, hopefully we'll see just more collaboration um, moving forward to solve these types of problems. Is there a deeper issue there as well, though? Because it's one thing for rich countries to offer um, perhaps uh, expedited paths toward visas to healthcare workers from poorer countries. Uh, it's another thing uh, though, to consider the effect that that leaves uh, behind, especially in, uh, in the uh, countries of origin. I, I know, for example, in the European context, uh, you have this uh, issue with a lot of people coming from the Western Balkans to, uh, you know, to higher paid uh, jobs in the healthcare 
sector in countries like Germany. So what's the international uh, dimension beyond the, the transatlantic uh, cooperation and the, and the collaboration of prosperous countries? That is a very good point. Um, I mean, I think that we just need more healthcare workers overall, but also, you know, you are seeing some collaboration with manufacturing um, distribution being set up in other other places and the and the manufacturer like in, not in rich countries, and you see the manufacturers going and helping um, to you know, so that other countries can have more access to the mRNA technology. I do think that that is a battle that's still being fought. Um, you know, you have the debate around like the patents and um, and what the World Health Organization should do. Um, and I, I don't pretend to be an expert on that question, um, but I do hope that we can see just a more collaborative future and solve these problems on a global scale because, you know, if COVID has revealed anything, we borders are irrelevant when you're talking about viruses. And unless we look at this as a global problem, we're never going to be able to solve these things. You know, again, monkeypox, like we're just seeing these are just going to keep coming. And um, it's not going to be a rich country, poor country problem. It's 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 a global problem. Last word on the international uh, dimension to you, Philip. Yeah, I think COVID has also shown uh, the risk of uh, sort of uh, certain seclusion of sort of, you know, uh, closing down borders. Um, we have seen um, an influx of, let's call it vaccine nationalism and debates on, you know, who should uh, get the manufacturing uh, capacities of vaccine uh, first. Uh, we have seen poaching of healthcare staff uh, across borders. Um, for example, Germany, depending uh, to a large extent uh, on, on, for example, Polish, Romanian um, and Bulgarian healthcare workers, especially uh, in the nursing sector, there have been uh, lots of debates uh, flaring up there. So, so I think at the end of the day, um, there is definitely a, a very, very big uh, imbalance uh, between, let's say, the developed Western world and, for example, uh, how uh, we treat the global south and some other um, less developed countries in uh, these sort of pandemics. And I think uh, globally, the efforts of the United Nations there with the COVAX alliance were noteworthy, but I don't think they're enough uh, to actually um, to actually affect some more equity um, in that global health space. Okay. Well, uh, Ariel Kane, uh, Philip Hoyerman, I want to thank you for uh, being part of this conversation today uh, as we've talked through the questions of trust in the medical systems and the health and public health systems in the United States and Germany. We've uh, talked about the long-term impact that COVID is having and will have uh, on our societies and uh, how we can promote, foster, and uh, advance the innovations that are going to be so crucial uh, to, to dealing with uh, the healthcare challenges that are changing even before our eyes, uh, Ariel, as you just mentioned. So thank you for bringing your uh, perspectives and uh, adding depth to this conversation. Uh, it's, been, it's been a really uh, fascinating discussion. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks, Ariel. And uh, I want to uh, thank all of our listeners uh, for being with us today. And we look forward to having you again with us on the next episode of The Zeitgeist. Thanks for listening to The Zeitgeist, a podcast produced by the American Institute for Contemporary German Studies at Johns Hopkins University. Send us your feedback by email to info at AICGS.org or catch us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at AICGS. 
Don't forget to check out AICGS.org for more information from today's episode. Auf Wiederhören.